0: Welcome to the legacy teachings of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Church since 1979. Though these teachings are decades old, we invite you to get out your Bible, take notes, and get ready to receive the uncompromised teaching of God's Word. For more information about Christian Assembly Church, please visit us online at cafamily.net. Turn with me, if you would please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and verse 27. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Today I will be sharing with you some facts about salvation. And we'll end by instructing how a person can be born again. This is our designated Salvation Sunday, and today we will be sharing some facts about salvation and also sharing with individuals how they can be born again. While you're turning there in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, before we look at that Scripture, let me just give to you another Scripture. And for those of you who may be with us for the first time, notice on the back of your bulletin, there's a place for you to write down some notes. That way, if you don't get all the Scripture references, or if we go a little bit too fast, then you can just write the note down, get the Scripture reference down, and research and look it up at a later time. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, in verse 13, the Bible says, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and a shame to him. And what that's saying is that in order for us to be foolish and ashamed, all we've got to do is just answer matters and situations without getting all the facts. But if we want to avoid being foolish and ashamed, then what we need to do is to get the facts, before we start answering matters. Haven't you been there before where you made a decision or a determination based on partial information? And then once you got all the facts, you found out just uh, how foolish you were to make such a decision and determination. And you felt somewhat ashamed because you spoke too soon. Well, when it comes to the ministry of salvation and being born again... I find that many do that very thing. They begin very defensively, defending their position based on their own understanding or limited knowledge. And therefore, when they find the truth out some years down the road, then they feel somewhat ashamed and foolish because they answered the matter before they really heard it. Well, that's, of course, part of our human nature. I remember the first time I heard about being born again, my response was not too intelligent. I said, certainly. We're all going to be born again. And just like Nicodemus, I said the same thing. We're going to crawl back into our mother's womb and be reborn. And I thought, now that's ridiculous. I mean, any intelligent person knows that that's not true. Who are these born again people anyhow? Why do they talk that way? Why do they they use such terminology? I had no understanding of being born again, but there I was just answering a matter before I heard it. So I didn't really understand. And I didn't know anything about it. Well, rather than being intelligent, I guess, enough to, to look to the Word of God to discover the truth, I just answered the matter based on my own limited knowledge. Well, in the book of Proverbs... Or in the book of James, rather, we have a counterpart, a New Testament counterpart to that statement there made in the book of Proverbs. It says, let every man be quick or swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. I think for the most part, we apply that to our lives in reverse. We're slow to hear, quick to speak and quick to wrath, swift to get angry over a matter. In other words, we don't hear what someone is saying because we're so quick to speak and defend our position and so quick to get angry because what they're saying doesn't line up with what we believe or what, what, what you know with what we think. Well, I think it's just a whole lot of wisdom to reverse it and put it where God wants it. Let everybody be swift to hear, listen, and get the facts first, and then slow to speak because maybe there's some things you haven't heard clearly enough yet, and slow to wrath. Take the time to do your own research and find out if what's being said is true. And then when you answer the matter, at least you won't be foolish and feel ashamed because you gave the wrong answers. Now, with all that in mind, what I would like us to do is look at this particular verse of Scripture because it reveals to us our first fact. What are the facts regarding salvation as outlined in the Word of God? Fact number one is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27. And as I go through these facts, I want to put something within our thinking. First and foremost, realize this. Whether or not we believe these things to be true is irrelevant. Facts are facts, regardless of how we believe. Example, there are spiritual laws and there are natural laws. Regardless of how we believe, they are laws that are based on facts. Our belief or unbelief will not change the facts and will not change the laws. One can say, one could say of himself, I don't believe in the law of gravity. Yet, If you walk off the top of a building, I guarantee you, you'll be a spot on the pavement below. Because facts are facts. Truth is truth. The law of gravity works. Take my word for it. Don't jump off a building to find out. It works. Regardless of how you believe or I believe, facts are facts. And that's just the way it is. So, even though you might say, or someone might say, I don't believe it, it doesn't change what is. Truth is truth, laws are laws, and facts are facts, regardless of how one believes. So, we better do some good research and discover what the Word says about things, so that we can base our lives on the facts of God's Word, not just on what we believe. In Hebrews nine twenty seven we have fact number one that mankind is faced with. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Fact number one is this everyone has an inescapable appointment with death. Now you say, I don't believe that. Well, I live long enough, you'll find out it's true. How many of you know it's true? Facts are facts, people. I know there are those that that say, I'm not going to die. Did you ever come across some of them? Oh, no, I'm not going to... I've been... been, You know, I've come across some of those people that said, I'm not going to die physically. And I kind of wonder, how how can anyone be so deceived? Well, I'm among those that will not die. Well, just give it some time and you'll find out that they'll be dead and long gone. Why? Because, as it says right here, as it is appointed unto men once to die... And after this, to judgment. So we are all facing the fact that we all will die one day. And after death, we face judgment. Someone says, I don't believe that. Well, facts are facts. Whether we believe it or not, God's Word says that when a person dies, he is not in a state of non-existence. He is not in a state of unconsciousness. It says that once he dies, he then will face judgment. That is fact number one. We all have an inescapable appointment with death and we all will die. And our unbelief cannot nullify or change what is. Fact number two is this. I'm going to give you the Scripture references. You can write them down. In the book of Isaiah 14, verse 9, chapter 14, verse 9, and in the New Testament, Philippians 1, 21 through 23. To save us some time, just write them down. Isaiah 14:9, Philippians 1, 21 through 23. Fact number two is, there is a hell to shun and there is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun, and there is a heaven to gain. Now, I've had people say, I don't believe that. But you see, once again, it doesn't matter. Unbelief will not change what is. There is a hell to shun, and there is a heaven to gain. In Isaiah 49, the Bible says, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. In other words, there are those who when they die, they will enter into this place called hell. And hell from beneath, it's located in the lower parts of the earth, from beneath, is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. So God's Word instructs us, revealing to us that hell is a literal place. And you'll find out, if you do more research, that there is a temporal hell and that there is a final hell but hell is a reality there is a hell to shun but also the good news is that there is a heaven to gain in philippians 1:21 the apostle paul said for me to live is christ and to die see that appointment death is gain well what does he gain by dying In verse 23, he tells us what he gains by dying. He says, for me to depart and be with the Lord is far better. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ at? He's on planet heaven. Seated at the Father's right hand. Say, I don't believe that. It doesn't matter what anyone believes. Facts are facts. And what is, is what is. And one cannot change what is by his or her unbelief. That's where Jesus is at. So the Apostle Paul knew that. So he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when a person lives in Christ and for Christ, when he dies or departs from his physical body, he goes to be with the Lord in heaven. So there is a temporal heaven, which is a place of reality. And those who are in Christ, when they die, they go there to be with him. Fact number two. Fact number 3 is found in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Turn to that one with me. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And in this Scripture, we will discover that everyone is guilty before God and in need of a Savior. Everyone is guilty before God. Everyone is lost and in need of a Savior. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, I know that may be hard for some to understand because I've come across those who have said to me, Well, you know, I don't do anything wrong. There's really nothing wrong with my life. I'm basically a good person. But once again, God's Word instructs us differently and says, all have sinned. Not just a few, but all have sinned. Now, you say, how can that be? Well, you're close by, so go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. And this Scripture will prove to us beyond any shadow of a doubt that all have sinned. In Romans 5, verse 12, we read, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, I want you to notice this. The thing that proves to us that all have sinned is the fact that death has passed upon all men. Before sin entered into the world, there was no death. But when sin came, death came along with it. So if there's been any one thing that will prove to all of us today that sin touches everyone's life is the fact that all those who live before us have died. And because they are dead, it proves... They all were affected by sin. If one wasn't affected by sin, he would still be living. She would still be living. So death proves that sin affects every human being. Because if there was an individual who was not affected by sin, that person would not die physically. Now, there's only two individuals that the Bible speaks of who did not taste death. And they were Elijah and Enoch. But God had a special program and plan for them. And we believe that they'll be coming back in the book of Revelation, fulfilling the prophecy. And at that point in time, they will die physically. So, death touches all mankind. In the book of Romans, since we're there, look at verse 23 for fact number four. If indeed in Adam all have sinned and death by natural generation has passed from one to the next, in some beliefs that is called original sin, in other words, sin from the very beginning when Adam, who is the figure representative for the entire human race, spiritually Mentally, emotionally, morally, socially. He was the figure representative for the entire human race. And when he made a decision to rebel against the plan of God, he was acting for the entire human race. And so, therefore, out of his loins, we've all come. And as a result, sin passed with death upon all men. So, if you've been born, if you're breathing and alive and have a pulse, then you have been affected by sin. Now, the problem with that is found here in Romans 6.23. Fact number four. For the wages of sin, now notice this, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want us to look at the first part of that. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And our fourth fact is this. If sin is allowed to run its full course, then sin will separate man from God eternally. If sin is allowed to run its full course, then the wages of sin is death. Now, that word death, we have to understand that when the Bible talks about death, it talks about three types of death at least. Spiritual death is separation from God while we live. Physical death is the separation of the spirit and soul from the body, at which time the body is lifeless and the spirit and soul go either to heaven or hell, the two places we talked about awaiting judgment. This death that the Apostle Paul says is the result of sin is called eternal death or eternal separation from God and we'll see it revealed to us in the book of Revelation chapter 20. So if you would please turn to that scripture. I believe it's important and we need to look at it. Revelation chapter 20 beginning at verse 11. This death is called the second death. So even though you may have lost some dear loved ones, they died physically and their spirit and soul has left the body, I want you to know that that's not the final death for the person who dies outside of Christ. There's still another death. It's called the second death. In the book of Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. Remember what he said, after death comes what? Judgment. It's appointed unto on man once to die after this, the judgment. Now notice, the books were open. Another book was open, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged. So fact number four, if death or sin rather is allowed to run its full course, one will die physically and also one will die eternally, which is eternal separation from God in a place called the lake of fire, which is the second death. Well, this sounds bad, doesn't it? Well, it's fact. I'm not preaching opinion. I'm just preaching facts from God's word. Now, notice Matthew chapter 5, or 25 rather, and beginning at verse 41. Let's read verse 41. Matthew 5 for our fifth fact. Matthew 25 and verse 41. Fact number five is this. Everlasting fire or the second death was prepared for the devil and his angels and not prepared for man. Man was never intended to enter into that place called the second death. God did not intend that for man, mankind, human beings. Look at the verse. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, Prepared for the devil and his angels. So it was not prepared for man. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. God does not want anyone to suffer the second death. He does not want any human being to perish and does not want one human being to enter into that lake of fire and suffer eternal separation from himself. Fact number six is found in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 16. John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, remember, up to this point, we're quoting the Word of God, giving facts and spiritual laws that will affect every human being regardless of what they think about it. Beginning at verse 16 here in John chapter 3, we'll start seeing the other side or the positive side to salvation and not the negative. Up to this point, we've talked about the negative showing us that man in his state is lost. He has an appointment with death. There is a hell to shun, a heaven to gain. The wages of sin is death. And if it's allowed to run its full course, one will suffer the second death and be eternally separated from God. Although all that is true, it was never God's intention. God didn't prepare it for mankind. He prepared it for the devil and his angels who rebelled against his plan before man did. And so, since God did not want that to be the end result for man, He didn't want that to be their eternal destiny, He was moved by His love for mankind to provide a way of escape. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God then did not want that to be the end result for man. So He sent His only begotten Son to the earth to die for us on Calvary's cross so that people would have The right of choice to experience not hell and eternal death, but heaven and eternal joy, eternal life. And it was all a product of God's love. There was no other way that God could do it. So, He offered His only begotten Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Giving us the opportunity to believe in Him and escape the second death. Now, I want to show you some other scriptures that will reveal to us that it was a love act from a loved God. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, and we'll read right on through verse 10, the scriptures teach us, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Notice, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for murderers. He died for thieves. He died for any person who ever did wrong in his life, no matter what degree of wrong was done. No matter how he views himself or considers himself, Christ died for the ungodly. And if you just refer to Romans chapter 323, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God... And therefore, Christ died for all of us. We were all in the same boat. Verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love. And that just means He introduced us to His love. His love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, notice this. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Now, as far as we are concerned, this act took place about 2,000 years ago. We weren't even born yet, but Christ already died for us. God makes the provision. All we've got to do is accept it. So, Christ died for sinners. He died for us to prove His love for us. And He did that while we were yet sinners, rebelling against Him and doing wrong. Nevertheless, the provision was already made. Christ died for us while we were in that state of ungodliness. But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by His blood. We shall be saved from the wrath, from wrath through Him." For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by death, the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved, notice, by His life. In other words, although we had nothing to do with Adam's high treason and sin, we were still affected by it. And because we were affected by it, if nothing was done to alter its course, then we would all die and spend eternity in the lake of fire. God, seeing our dilemma, so loving us, sent Christ His Son to die for us, not in a state of righteousness, but in a state of being ungodly. And even in that state, His love was so far-reaching and His mercy so great that He still came and died for us to give us the right of choice to choose life and not death. And here it says, by His blood, we can be saved from wrath. And of course, the wrath meaning the end result. Spending eternity in the lake of fire. Another scripture that reveals to us, you don't have to turn to it, you can just write it down, Ephesians 2.4, that reveals to us the love of God is Ephesians 2.4, and it says, God who is rich in mercy and great in his love for us for his great love wherewith he loved us this was an act of love the ultimate sacrifice and there was no other way for man to be saved so fact number 5 or 6 rather is god's great love for mankind moved him to provide a savior so that we would not be lost in our sins. Fact number seven is found in the Gospel according to St. John. Chapter 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. In that Scripture we have our seventh fact, and that is that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Someone says, I don't believe that. I believe that there are other religions in the world, and people can get to God another way. What we believe is irrelevant. What is fact is fact. No one else died for the human race. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, we are told there is one God, and we believe that part, don't we? But in the latter part of that verse, we are told, and there is one mediator between God and man, or men, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And without Him, one cannot be saved. Man lost the way into the Father's presence through sin and willful disobedience. Jesus came, and before He left, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by Me. I am the door. If any man will come through me, the door, he can experience everlasting life. Some scriptures that will help us n- understand why Jesus is the only one qualified are, and write them down. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did extreme him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we, all of us, have gone astray, every man to his own way, yet the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's only one individual that we know of that this Scripture was fulfilled in one life. The Lord laid on him, that is Christ Jesus our Lord, the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every man turned to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That qualifies him to be the way back to the Father. In John 15:13, Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So he laid down his life And God Almighty laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And that qualifies Him because of His great love to be the only way to the Father. Now, in the book of Romans chapter 5, and these are scriptures I want us to read. We read the one that said, by one man sin entered into the world. And we had nothing to do with that. These scriptures will reveal to us that Jesus is the one individual who can lead us to life everlasting. In the book of Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. In other words, if because of Adam, all will be condemned to the lake of fire, if because of his disobedience, everyone is condemned to the lake of fire, then it's only because of one man's obedience that all of us can experience justification unto everlasting life. Now, that makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? One man caused the problem. One man is the problem solver. Not a multitude of men, but one man. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The one man being Adam, we were all made sinners. One man being Christ... In His obedience, we all can be made righteous in the sight of God. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Moon, but thanks be to God by Jesus Christ our Lord. So, once again, Christ is the only way to the Father is fact number 7. And another scripture that reveals the same truth is Acts 4.12. Write it down. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. One name. His name, Jesus Christ. Fact 8 is found in Ephesians chapter two in verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Reading verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man shall boast. Fact 8 is this. One cannot save himself through good works or being religious. One cannot save himself through good works or through being religious. In the book of Acts, chapter 10, and I want you to turn to that one with me because this is very important. So many believe that because of their good works or because of their righteous acts, that they will will be justified before God and that their end will be eternal life. It's a sad thing to say, beloved, but many good people by worldly standards will find themselves in the lake of fire where they will spend eternity. That will be their eternal destiny. You say that doesn't make any sense. Well, as you put all this together, you'll find out that it does. Man has a problem. It's a sin problem. Adam was the one that caused it all. There's only one problem solver. His name is Jesus Christ. We are not good enough. We are not religious enough. We can't do anything in ourselves to correct the problem. Without recognizing God's Savior and acting on God's plan, man has no approach to God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Anything we can do, lest any man should boast. If there's any individual revealed in the Bible who should be saved because of good works and because of religion, it would be this man named Cornelius. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. A devout man and one that feared God with all of his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter he lodgeth with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. That is Acts 10, verses 1 through 6. And to condense it, let's just look at another Scripture in Acts 11 and verse 14, 13 and 14. The angel said, Send for Simon Peter, and he'll tell thee what you ought to do. And in verse 13, this is... Cornelius speaking, he says, And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, Peter saying of Cornelius, which stood and said unto him, Send man to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Now notice this. That's what God told him to do by the angel. Who shall tell thee words, whereby you and all your house shall be saved. This man was religious. This man gave alms. This man prayed always, and this man saw an angel. And yet this man was not saved. The man had to hear the words whereby he and his house would be saved. Good works. What about them? Look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 18 and verse 9. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18 and verse 9. Being religious... Giving alms, praying always, fasting always, all those things are good and commendable. We thank God for them all. I did all those things before I got saved. I did them as a religious form. Based on what I was taught, based on what I was believed, but none of those things saved me. I was still unsaved. Just like Cornelius did great things. But still Cornelius was unsaved and his house. Peter went down and told him words whereby he and his house would be saved. One of the most difficult things to do is to minister salvation to those who have been reared up in religion. Because they believe their religion saves them. And I want to make a bold statement this morning, beloved. More people have been sent to hell because of religion than any one thing else. Good works is another. It's right up there with religion. Verse 9. He spake this parable unto unto certain which trusted in themselves. Remember our, our fact. We can't do anything to be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. Man is incapable of being good enough or religious enough to save himself. Which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank Thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This man was self-righteous, and he based his salvation on his own self-righteousness. But we are instructed in the Word of God that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And standing in the presence of God saying, I've done this and I've done that and I've done this and I've done that and I don't do this like others do. I don't commit adultery. I don't commit fornication. I don't steal. I don't rob. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't do all these different things. In the sight of God, all that is as filthy rags. And that's being clothed with rags of unrighteousness. It's as filthy rags. And we go on reading and it says, And the publican who supposedly supposedly was the sinner. See, the Pharisee was supposedly righteous because of his religious beliefs. But the publican was an outcast. He was considered a sinner. The publican, standing afar off, he didn't know God up close. He knew Him afar off. But the Pharisee was supposed to know Him up close because he had a, a covenant with God. "...would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." This man recognized his lost state, recognized he was a sinner, and knew that only God had the mercy that he needed to provide a way of escape. I cannot save myself. I cannot be religious enough. I cannot do enough good works. And he cried out to God and said, Have mercy upon me, a sinner." And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. Fact number nine is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, we'll discover that being saved is a choice. Being saved or being born again is... Is a choice. It's a fact, beloved, regardless of what we think, that God does not make the decision as to who enters into heaven or who enters into hell. The person that makes the decision is the individual. Our eternal destiny is in our own hands. What will we choose to do with what God has done to provide us with a way of escape? And a way to experience eternal life. It's our choice. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19. God is speaking and he says. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. That I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life. God is saying I made you a free will agent. You are confronted with life, the issues of life and the issues of death. God is even pointing the arrow in the right direction. He is trying to communicate to all mankind saying, choose life. I don't want you to have death and eternal separation. Choose life. God is not willing that one should perish, but that all should come into repentance. So, fact number nine is this. Being saved or born again is a choice. Man is a free will agent. And with his free will agency, he chooses his eternal destiny. He chooses heaven or he chooses hell. In Joshua 24:15, he had this. Joshua did. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. As for me and I, my house, we will serve the Lord. He chose to serve the Lord. He wasn't different than anyone else. He chose. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and verse 24, these are the words of Jesus with, in, with regard to our choice, what decision we make. It gives us insight concerning our choice or our right to choose. Jesus said in Matthew 16:24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, or if any man will choose life, if one says, I don't want to spend eternity in the lake of fire, I choose to experience eternal life and spend eternity with God, then Jesus says, If any man will come after me, choosing life, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for My sake shall find it. In other words, whosoever chooses to live by his own ways, according to his own desires, he will lose his eternal life. But a person who will choose to follow Me in the regeneration of the Son of Man, then he will experience life everlasting. He must deny himself the right to an independent lifestyle. He'll deny himself of that right to live an ungoverned life. But he'll choose God's way. He'll take up his cross, which means he makes a decision of the will to choose to do the will of God and he will follow my example as a disciple As a student. So, we choose to have life by choosing Christ. But it's more than just an affirmation. It's knowing that God wants your life. My life. My entire being. And then choosing to give myself to Him. deny myself, to take up my cross and follow Him. And finally, our fact ten is found in John's Gospel. Well, let let me finish reading this first. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, if a man chooses to live his life the way he wants to, and he seeks to pursue fame and wealth and fortune and all these things that this life has to offer, uh, and if he gets the whole world with a fence around it, what has he gained? Nothing. Because he's still confronted with the first fact it's supported, on the man once to die and after this the judgment so he has gained nothing can't take it with him our final fact is John's Gospel chapter 3 beginning at verse 3 in order for us to experience eternal life and make heaven our home and spend our eternal destiny with God the Father God the Son God the Holy Ghost In the eternal kingdom, one must be born again. Fact 10. Being saved is being born again. Jesus answered and said in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see, perceive, enter into, recognize the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered. Notice Nicodemus' response. I believe he was legitimate. He never had heard that before. And so he asked these questions probably to get the facts. And Jesus gave him some more facts. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of of God, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So the one who is in supreme authority, the one who is qualified to lead us back to the Father, instructs us by saying, we must experience a rebirth or a new birth. Now let us... Recognize this. The only way we got into this realm of life, that is, to be a human being on the earth, in this world, is through a birth. And Jesus is saying the only way to experience the glory world and its eternity is through another birth. A rebirth. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, let's discover what the new birth, or being born again, is not. Number one, it is not water baptism. There are those who think because I was baptized in water that I'm saved. Jesus was not talking about being baptized in water here. Being born of water, in one sense we can say, is just a physical birth. A physical birth. You've been born physically, and that's fine. But in order to enter His kingdom, you must be born again spiritually. So water baptism doesn't mean one is saved. And if you read Acts chapter 10, you'll discover that they were saved before they were baptized in water. So obviously, water baptism is not saving an individual. Number two, being born again is not church membership. Because one has joined a church does not necessarily mean that person has been born again. You can sit in church for 50 years, but it does not make you a born-again, saved child of God. You can sit in your garage for 50 years. You will not be a car. And that's guaranteed. Can you say amen? Amen. So sitting in church, in this church, Right here, on these tubes, right here, does not mean you're born again. Unless a change has taken place, you're not born again. And I guarantee you, unless a change has taken place, you're not a car either. Works the same. So you can sit there all you want. Also, being born again is not reformation. Well, I'm a different person. I'm going to give up this. I'm going to give up that. I'm going to get religious now or whatever. That's not what it is. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Anyone can live by a higher level or code of moral values. Anyone can choose to do that. And people do do that. But that doesn't save them. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So, being born again or being saved is not water baptism. It is not church membership. It is not reformation. What is it then? I'm so glad you asked. Write them down. John 5:24. 24. Those, there are those that will be listening. Audio cassette. And we want them to have the Scriptures. So they can look them up for themselves. I'm, I don't believe in this. Just repeat. One, two, three. Repeat after me. And that's all there is to it. I believe in this. Give them the facts. Give them the Word of God. You see, but it's so boring sometimes. You know what? That's the devil making people slumber and sleep. Wake up. Your eternity is at stake. Your future destination is at stake. If we get bored with this, beloved, something is wrong. Something is wrong. John 5, 24 says that the rebirth or being born again, being saved is this. And I'll just give you the condensed version here. You're passing from death unto life. Your spirit is dead because of sin. But what took place in your spirit is you passed out of that death into life. That is a rebirth of the human spirit. It's passing out of death into life. And if that hasn't happened to an individual, that person's not born again. Unless that action takes place, sin will run its full course in that person's life, and they'll have their end in the lake of fire. The only way that sin and its course can be altered, stopped, in effect, how is how? By rebirth. Because then sin and death are removed from that person's spirit life and life is imparted. And that's number two. How does this happen? James 1.18 says, Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth. God Almighty of His own will gives rebirth or regeneration to the human spirit of a man. That's being born again. And there is an impartation of the life and the nature of God, which is righteousness being imparted to the spirit of a man. So being born again is the Father God through the Word, by the agency of the Holy Ghost, removing death from our spirit and imparting life and a new nature. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. And what that means is, is that this person's spirit is recreated. Death was lodged in the heart of a man, but once again by the agency of the Holy Ghost, through the Word, the Father God, Recreated that person's spirit that was fallen. Death is removed, life is imparted. The person is a new creature or creation. Anything in the past is gone away. All things within have become brand new. And all those things now are of God, not of an agency of darkness. And finally, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six gives us the the picture of it in prophecy. He says, A new heart will I put in you, and a new spirit will I give you. I'll take the stony heart out of you and put in you a heart of flesh. God, the divine surgeon, does a work. He removes the old stony heart and nature of a man, puts within a brand new heart, A brand new spirit with His very own life and nature. 2 Peter 1, 4 says we've been partakers, made partakers of the divine nature. The very life and nature of God. Those are the facts, beloved. And unless that has happened, one is not born again. Now, in conclusion, how can I be born again? In answer to that question... I give you these scriptures. In 1 Peter 1.23, the Bible says, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever." You must know the word of God. So now you have heard the word of God. This is what God's word says. These are the facts regarding salvation and being born again. In Romans 10, verse 8, the Bible says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy heart and in thy mouth, that is the word of faith that we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe from thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Has nothing to do with works. Has everything to do with belief. Now here is where our believing can change some things. That death that is there in the heart can be removed if a person will call upon the name of the Lord. Because verse 13 of Romans 10 says... For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Has nothing to do with works. The work was done by the Lord Jesus Christ. All I've got to do is believe it. And if I will believe it and invite Him in by calling upon His name then He will recreate my spirit and give birth to me. By grace are you saved through faith, not by your own works. It's the gift of God. Salvation is a gift that comes from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So all a person has to do is acknowledge these truths and these facts and with understanding... Call upon the name of the Lord and say, I give myself to you. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Come in, Jesus, to my heart, into my life. Recreate my spirit and give me eternal life. And He will. For by grace are you saved through faith. And all faith means is that when you call, you believe He comes in. In Matthew 7 verses 7 through 11, we're told, ask and you shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be open to you. So if we ask, we will receive. That's all we have to do. That's all anyone has to do. And if they'll do it, if they'll call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. I'd like us to bow our heads. Just to bow our heads. And for those who would be listening by cassette, I'm going to pray a prayer that if they will pray, they will be born again. If after hearing the message, you say, I am ready to make a decision for Christ, this is all you have to do. You can either repeat my words or you can just say it to God yourself. But this is what one needs to say. Heavenly Father, I come to You just as I am. You said if I come, You would not turn me away. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, I believe You died for my sins. I believe You were raised from the dead for me. I ask You now to come into my heart and recreate my spirit and give me eternal life. Father God, I have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. I now believe I have received eternal life. I am now born again. I am Your child. I thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Legacy Teachings.